Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute. How can physicians use best clinical judgment to determine core drivers for cancer screening? Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GRAIL. In this final podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Christopher Mason and Dr. Pashtun Cassie continue their discussion of multi-cancer early detection tests, this time turning to how to incorporate these tests into clinical practice. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect three. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Mason is a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Dr. Cassie is Director of Colon Cancer Research at Weill Cornell Medicine and Director of Liquid Biopsy Research at the Englander Institute of Precision Medicine, also at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Mason will begin our discussion. Well, hello. Welcome to our final podcast on early detection with multi-cancer early detection testing. And I'm here with uh, Dr. Pashtun Kashi. Dr. Kashi, uh, welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, so we'll jump right, right back in. This is the, the third uh, leg of a three-legged stool of diagnostics. And we have uh, gone through some fascinating subjects of the technology and how the tests work and different tests on the market. But I think uh, for clinicians, probably the, the big key question is, how do we get these tests into clinical practice? What's the best way to deploy them? Uh, who should get into them? Uh, you know, you'd be using these tests. Really, what's the best way to deploy them in an efficacious and really uh, judicious and and really useful way clinically? So I think uh, actually we probably couldn't be uh, couldn't have a better person on the show today to talk about it. You're one of the uh, head investigators and coordinators uh, for the uh, Pathfinder study, and uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the study's doing and also. What, what it's trying to expand upon that maybe um, the original studies uh, might have missed? Well, I think the key uh, aspect to highlight, I, I guess, for anybody in the field of oncology or, and, and also now early detection, which is applicable to everybody in terms of individuals who don't have cancer to consider screening modalities, is the fact that um, the, these tests, as well as the questions, it's a continuous learning that's happening and it's a continuous refinement uh, of not just the science that's going into the testing, but also how in the real world these assays or tests may perform and how to integrate them into clinical practice. Uh, I think it's of value to note, at least uh, for uh, the ones in the United States, that this is uh, the initial Pathfinder study that was just reported out. The follow-up to that, the Pathfinder 2, is something that's already enrolling and already open uh, at many mm. sites across the country where, um, again, individuals who made the screening age for some of these uh, different cancers uh, would have the opportunity to have the non-invasive blood tests done and then the subsequent process of if you do find a cancer signal detected um, to determine you know, if we are able to find it uh, through whatever procedures, I think these would be opportunities to not only get screened, but also opportunities to further understand how this test may form in the real world scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're seeing, yeah, this is one of the really the big questions is when you get into the real world, uh, people are complicated. People can be uh, messy. They don't always take their medication. They say they don't smoke, but you can see cigarettes in their pocket. 
you know, so of all the covariates and what's out there uh, for what we see for patients, uh, how, you know, how have you been ranking, I guess, is some of the, the modeling for uh, who gets the highest recommendation? So is it, are you looking at smokers, people with, uh, that are maybe had cancer recently and looking at minimum residual disease? Are you thinking about alcohol, obesity? Uh, if, if someone's like a, a New York Giants fan versus a Packers fan, uh, what are the factors that go into your uh, decision-making? I think that's a great question. You know, at one end, you could argue this is a screening, you know, one test for all, something that you might uh, in a perfect world consider as part of your annual physical with your primary care doctor by a certain age. Uh, you know, is that the best uh, way forward for some of these uh, tests? But then there are, you know, from a society and cost perspective, you know, the downstream uh, impact or even the sustaining the cost of such an intervention, no matter what the cost is, I think there are, um, these are huge, you know, discussions that are ongoing and nobody knows the right answer here. Uh, at the other end, like you mentioned, you know, is the best use uh, focusing on uh, populations that may be high risk? So, uh, you know, for the ones who are getting the low-dose CT scan of the lung for lung cancer, who patients who have uh, individuals who have a certain pack years history of smoking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, could the blood tests uh, be implemented in those scenarios? And there are some uh, additional liquid biopsies that are pairing that as a composite strategy in some of those screening interventions. And some of the discussions we're having with our colleagues is, is this something that would be of value in a high-risk clinic, like people who may have a, a germline mutation that predisposes them to develop certain cancers, like people who have the breast cancer gene or the BRCA gene that can develop, for example, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, pancreas cancer, amongst many other cancers during their lifetime, or folks who have the so-called Lynch syndrome who can develop colon cancer, uterine cancer, a bunch of different cancers. You know, yeah. There are high-risk clinics that are monitoring these patients uh, and also populations. I think there is a big question regarding um, the variability between the same cancers having different rates. Uh, uh, some cancers are very high in African-Americans in uh, certain yep. people of certain descent. So, you know, uh, do we focus on certain populations uh, more than others? Uh, I think those are all questions that uh, everybody's trying to answer, including NCI. Yeah, and then the big ethical questions too, how do you make sure you have some degree of, of parity uh, and you know, uniformity in the medical system to make sure that uh, say African-American patients aren't getting underdiagnosed uh, or that another group of patients is getting overdiagnosed, and you know, as, as you well noted, of course, things like Tay-Sachs disease and Ashkenazi Jewish populations are very enriched, and so uh, you know, they uh, there are already a, a number of genetic tests there, uh, even just for you know who, who people should marry to try and avoid the disease. But I think what's interesting is the, the another kind of technical component of this, of course, is the human genome is built off of a uh, the reference of it is a uh, collection of mostly Caucasian males. And, you know, there are pieces of the genome that are distinct between different ancestries around the world. And so some of them, uh, we may just by the nature of how we built our reference genome be missing some of them uh, for now. And, and it probably doesn't make too big of a difference, but there will to some degree be a, a need uh, as, as we can sequence longer and complete references to have, you know, an ancestry matched a reference that you use for doing some of your variant calling and to improve what you can, what you can basically see. So, you know, currently the tests just avoid these areas that are repetitive or complicated. But I think what's interesting is long-term, there may be other signal in all parts of the genome that you can try and pick up 
uh, in repetitive structures or, or other areas of the genome. Some Something that I did want to mention, at least uh, from an implementation standpoint, like you brought up, uh, one model may not necessarily suit all healthcare systems. Uh, in some yeah. instances, uh, like Canada and other uh, places, uh, there are uh, more so broader um, screening efforts uh, that uh, may be implemented at a regional or population level, whereas uh, that may be a different strategy for a different place uh, in terms of adoption and how uh, the uptake is. But, but I do think it uh, would help reduce the disparity given lower cost and mm -hmm. ease of uh, administration, including like as we were discussing earlier, uh, you know, in terms of mobile phlebotomy or, or even, mm. you know, getting uh, the blood drawn wherever you can or at different clinics, you know, obviously from a clinical standpoint, this is not necessarily something that uh, has to be at a cancer center. In fact, uh, these are obviously normal individuals. So this is uh, something that would be at the primary care level or the family medicine clinic or for that matter, any clinic or even uh, mobile labs. You know, I think that's where the, the, the you would see that uh, as we see mobile uh, mammogram units and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. those kind of interventions ongoing for CT scans, uh, obviously that uh, requires a larger resource as opposed to getting a simple blood drawn, I think that there's, there's definitely a lot of potential, but at the same time, there are a lot of questions that we need to ascertain regarding how to implement this in a cost-effective fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be payers, it'll be the the in infrastructure, some of the logistics and hospitals, it's all going to be, uh, it, it does have a cost, of course. And so I think the, um, you know, stratifying who's high or low risk does help reduce the cost and increase some efficiency, uh, which is great, which actually gets me to, to, you know, uh, what's the best time or age do you think for testing? I think it's usually we think of older, but there's a, there are younger patient populations that have uh, inherited disease or risk of disease. Um, and, and time of day, there was a paper, actually it was uh, about four months ago that said that cancer cells grow the most uh, when you're sleeping. I don't know if you saw that paper that based, based on circadian rhythm. And I, I put it, posted online and in the lab, I said, well, if you're having any trouble sleeping, don't read this, you know, because basically saying, you know, they can listen to the cacophony of cancer cells dividing while you sleep. Uh, but it does raise the question of, of course, circadian rhythm drives much of our biology, uh, including cancer biology. And so, you know, should we get the blood draw first thing in the morning? Uh, what, what do you think about the best time and age for the patients of testing? I think the age part brings up a good question because obviously, in general, obviously, the younger you are, I think the biggest risk factor for any cancer is age, uh, outside of other mm -hmm. environmental triggers, and that's why you see screening. You know, individuals are not often born with cancers, or often don't develop necessarily cancers earlier in their lifetime, especially with ones that have concomitant environmental exposures and risk factors. But you see the screening of a lot of these uh, modalities at age 40, 50, and I guess the current. Um, uh, discussion is is integrating it with current screening platforms and uh, mm -hmm. uh, for the ones that is screening, you know, kind of building upon that and seeing if that adds further value uh, or further increasing uptake for there is uh, for cancer with is screening for the cancer with is no screening. Um, again, at least uh, till we get more data, uh, I would say mm -hmm. the value may be uh, less in the younger patient population unless there, there are patient populations that might further be enriched for certain risk factors that might predispose them for certain cancers. I think it's still an important area to study, but as you noted, even in the initial studies, the actual percentage who may be positive is going to be in the ballpark of one to 2%. So 
So it, it might be lower if you go went down on the aid. So um, I think the, 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 there would be questions regarding the, the cost and how to sustain that at a population-based level. But uh, as it least as of right now, the current studies that are ongoing or prospectively enrolling are taking people who are uh, meeting the current screening guidelines for age-appropriate cancer screening. No. And I think yeah, some of these big studies you're mentioning will really tease that out. So, for example, um, you know, the uh, National Health Service uh, in England is doing a large study now for uh, uh, multi-cancer early detection testing. And the age is there between 50 and, and 77 uh, throughout England, and they're getting 140,000 uh, people that have signed up. So, you know, there I think we'll know very soon, you know, you know it's possible maybe you have to go uh, to 45 instead of 50 as the lower bound, or maybe... 50 catches almost everything, and, and that just gives people peace of mind. Uh, but then they also are looking at uh, other risk factors. So I think uh, yeah, it's very fascinating to see the field uh, develop. So uh, I think you know, some of the other uh, questions that come up in terms of implementation. So, okay, we've got this great test. It's relatively easy to deploy. Uh, up, uptick is really uh, abound, and people are excited. But, you know, when you think about in the, in the clinic and you have practice, there's uh, questions of, of staffing, uh, how do you report the results back? Uh, you know, when you have mutations that are very clear, uh, also ones you've been looking for, because you have an indication it might be related to a tumor, a tumor type or a cancer that you already had a, a hunch about. What do you do though when you have um, more unclear results or results that are variants of unknown significance? Uh, do you at all work with genetic counselors or do deployment? Um, you know, what are some of the on the ground complications you've seen? With, with uh, in your in your clinic, I, I've definitely seen in my own hands uh, tubes being mislabeled. Uh, I've seen you know people shipping them to the wrong address. I've even seen uh, some of the companies will get the box and still sits for two days. So there's all sorts of things that can happen when you're shipping tubes around. But uh, what have you seen uh, in in your practice? I think some of the challenges and questions uh, as you brought up are similar questions when uh, genetic testing were for hereditary cancer so determining if something is running in the family were being done and how that impacted uh, you know coverage uh, and even life insurance and yeah. disparity there and disclosure results even to this date you know like you mentioned if you had a variant of unknown significance what does that mean what do I need to do differently um, in oncology you know at least with you know scans there is that term called scansiety where Patients who are getting scans, they have the anxiety of this test, you know, what if it shows something, you know, who are in the survivorship looking for whatever cancer. I think with blood testing too, you know, they, 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 in the study as well, they described, uh, and there are obviously stories out there as well about individuals who had the test and the test is saying it's positive, but they never found any cancer. You know, uh, obviously downstream you're yeah. doing, let's say, a PET CT scan or whatever imaging modality, you know, none of these tests are perfect. So what if you have a situation where the signal is, you know, you have a person who knows that maybe they have cancer, but you don't find cancer. Is it just the fact that you've caught it so early that nothing is detectable or, you know, there is that, uh, you know, continuous learning and refinement that's happening. Is it picking up a signal that what if it's truly false positive? Uh, I think those are uh, obviously ethical considerations and, uh, you know, uh, those are informed discussions that probably need to happen before the testing is done in the clinic. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is something that um, you would want to have a frank discussion with the individual as to what are we going to do with the results of the testing before the results come back. Uh, you need to have that discussion and plan 
uh, if it's a negative, what's the cadence and what's what am I going to do with the result? And if it's a positive, you know, what's the downstream steps that are going to be done based on what the results can be seen? So uh, again, those are informed discussions. And, and maybe for some individuals, maybe this is not a consideration. You know, again, that would be an informed discussion and a shared decision between the patient's care provider and the patient and the caregiver. But in some instances, uh, you know, it's uh, it would make sense that it would have universal adoption, but, you know, we've been as oncologists and clinicians, uh, you know, we respect the decision and mm. the fact that there might be some individuals who might say maybe that's not what's something that they want to know. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but I think that conversation has to happen before the testing is done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, um, and also you think about just impact on the family. Right? So if you, if you've got a, you're suddenly finding you're a high risk or you even have uh, early stage cancer, if you have a sibling who's also 50 or 53, the should they go get tested? You know, you sort of look at hereditary cancer risk. You know, most of the panels today do not do that, but as we do sequencing and more and more of the genome, we look at other areas, we'll start to pick up people with, you know, risk of uh, very clear hereditary cancer, uh, other just diseases that they could uh, be at a higher risk factor for. So the, the science is new, but, but we'll start to see it. And I would say, you know, I don't think anything is 100%. I think we have to realize that. I don't think it's anything against one assay or one technology. I think nothing in science and nothing about humans is 100%. There's going to be variations. There will be new data. There will be learning uh, that will continuously ha happen. So uh, I think the key is to learn from the ongoing studies and uh, the pros and cons that might come about and the challenges that might come out in certain situations. Uh, in, in the previous podcast, we talked about how in some of the studies, they were having uh, cancer site origin detection overlap between cancers that had similar biology, like the HPV virus causing head and neck cancer, causing cervical cancer, causing anal cancer. There was, uh, from what I saw in the paper, there was overlap of some of the matrix. So they did detect a signal of the cancer. And, and uh, if you look at the methodology that has gone through iterations and stuff, and, and it, and it you know, at, at some point in time, you have to fix the number of panel and what you're going to study. There's going to be some compromise between um, how the assay and test may perform for a certain tumor type. Uh, and that's fine. I think that nothing is perfect, but I think that it's important to realize the limitations as one implements this assay or, or even if you're not uh, somebody who is ordering it, I think the, the technology is already there. You might be the person where somebody may be bringing in a report for you to interpret. So I think we can't yeah. uh, get away from this. I think it's here to stay, liquid biopsies and also for detection. So uh, even if you're not the person who's ordering the assay, you need to understand what would be the downstream consequences and how to interpret the results of these assay and the nuances between the strengths and challenges of any of these assays. Yeah, and one of the things that's actually come up as also been a surprise is when you sequence the samples. If you do panels or you do capture, you'll be very have these bespoke targets. But in other cases, uh, in studies we we've done and others, if you sequence everything there, you can pick up mutations. But you also sometimes pick up you know latent infections or viral reactivation. You can you know start to even pick up other things you weren't planning to look for. Or uh, this also was called occult uh, tumors in uh, patients for non-invasive prenatal testing where mothers who are pregnant or, you know, soon to be mothers are pregnant, just getting tested and you can pick up also rare cancers that way. So uh, there's often surprises when you, when you go looking uh, in sequence deep, you'll find things for sure. Um, so I'm going to we'll close with one thought just on, you know, uh, patients who are coming in, say with uh, already that, that have mutations, say germline mutations, 
And uh, we we have seen patients together who, who come into the clinic with already carrying, say, BRCA mutations or other other uh, existing germline uh, risks. And do, do, have you seen a lot of that? Uh, do you do you feel like that? Um, in some sense, it gives you a positive control in the data. You know, uh, one of the mutations to look for. But uh, how has that affected some of your care? Any any sort of tips for other clinicians out there when they start to see some of these more complex patients? I would say the with the cost of some of these testing becoming cheaper, the adoption has been for more panel-based approaches, and we are picking up more patients with these aberrations or individuals with these aberrations who otherwise traditionally would not have met guidelines. Uh, there, are, there are numerous works recently published this year where um, it uh, has increased the number of people uh, by 10, 20% who otherwise, if you just had followed the guidelines and family history or the age, you might have missed these instances. Uh, so, you know, in those high-risk individuals would something like an early cancer detection assay help yeah. uh, in addition to the ongoing screening programs? I think that's a great research question because uh, I can tell you there are very varied practices, uh, for example, what to do with a patient who has BRCA who might be at risk for pancreas cancer in terms of how frequently do I do an MRI or do I do an EUS or do I do yearly blood draws or things that are not as specific. So, you know, at a broad level, obviously, integrating it at every primary care level is one question, but then at a more sophisticated enriched level are these individuals who are high risk for other cancers uh, where they may have a non-invasive blood tool added to their current screening paradigm. Yep, I think it's a... That's a beautiful note on the, the, the complementarity and getting as much data from every test, but also putting in the context of everything else we know about the patient is, of course, the best way uh, to find disease and hopefully prevent it, uh, or at least uh, if it's there, then to treat it. So, well, uh, that is the, uh, the the final podcast on early detection multi-cancer testing that we're doing. And uh, Dr. Pestrum Kashi, uh, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'll see you in the hallways of the hospital or the uh, um the Greenberg Building, and uh, look forward to seeing you on campus again soon. And thank you so much for joining. And thanks to everyone who joined us on your commute. And hopefully you are not picking up any uh, exceptionally large numbers of mutations. Have a great uh, day. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect three. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.